From the studios of KPCW in Park City, this is The Mountain Life, Healthy Living in the Wasatch. I'm Lynn Ware Peak. And this morning, we bring you a rebroadcast show with guests Dr. Romy Mushtak, a board-certified physician in neurology, integrative medicine, and mindfulness for over 20 years. She talks about her cure for the busy brain. Then, in nine months and 21 days, ultra-runner Charlie McKee summited all the named peaks in her hometown of Salt Lake City. Come explore with us, and stay tuned. We'll be back after these words. Welcome back to The Mountain Life. I'm Lynn Ware Peak. My next guest is Dr. Romy Mushtak. Dr. Romy is a board-certified physician and award-winning wellness speaker and the founder of something called Brain Shift at Work. She specializes in neurology, integrative medicine, and mindfulness, and she aims to create cultural change. She's embarked on a global journey to research and heal the negative impact of the stress responses on our brain's and bodies. She joins me today to discuss her new book, The Busy Brain Cure, the eight-week plan to find focus, tame anxiety, and sleep again. Dr. Romy, welcome to the mountain. Awesome to join you all and your listeners. I don't take anybody's time for granted, so let's dive right in. Well, let's. Okay, so we all know, you know, it's it's this common thing that we wear this badge of honor, as you say, to talk about how stressed or busy we are. But that's becoming an old conversation, isn't it? We yeah. we need to uh, yeah. really make a change. And there's no better place, I think, to start this conversation than to ask you about what happened to you. Oh, my God. Lynn, you know, people often hear, ooh, chronic stress can cause disease. Yes. And I'm here to tell you chronic stress can kill you. It almost killed me and I should have known better. I'm a brain doctor. I did everything right according to not only society, but more importantly, my dad and my aunties, as you read about it in my book. And as an immigrant's daughter, English is a third language. Uh, There was one success mantra my entire childhood. I have one daughter and you will become a doctor. And I did. I entered neurology at a time where less than 5% of the brain doctors in America were women. And I loved my job. That churn and burn special that we all post pandemic feel like we're stuck on. You're churning all day on all cylinders to manage work, maybe some semblance of a personal life, burning the midnight oil to catch up on work again, many of our listeners know, or house chores, which is still work and depriving ourselves of sleep it caught up with me. And what we thought was just stress-induced reflux was a more serious disease made worse by chronic stress and sleep deprivation. And a term which you and I are going to unpack, I call the busy brain. And it turned out by the time I was correctly diagnosed, I had precancerous lesions and ended up in life-saving surgery in 2010. The worst part was, Lynn, of all of that was laying in the hospital bed afterwards going, I did everything right in life. And yet nothing I've learned in medical school is going to help me now. I don't know what to do. Wow. Maybe a good place to really launch into this is to talk about what the physiological response is in our body. Yours happened to be gastrointestinal, it sounds Mm -hmm. like, Mm -hmm. Um, but there are many other ramifications of of what we do. So what is actually going on in our bodies when we are feeling stress and anxiety? I thank you for having this conversation because 
I think the conversations that have been have we've had prior to the release of this book and research are really quite frankly outdated. We talk about the acute stress response prior to the pandemic. We're at a point where neither you nor any of the listeners want to hear, oh, Lynn, just eat berries and breathe and everything's going to be just fine. Chronic stress has an impact on how the brain is wired, not just in the acute stress response center, the limbic system, if I can dig into some brain science here, but what I call the airport traffic control tower of the brain and the body known as the hypothalamus, specifically the SCN nucleus and your circadian rhythm that not only governs our sleep-wake cycle, but it's like an airport traffic control tower. You're not only controlling the flights that are coming right in there to Salt Lake City. But if the airport gets shut down due to a snowstorm in Salt Lake City, it's going to affect all the incoming flights from all over the country and all over the world. That's exactly the way the brain is. It's wired, the circadian rhythm, to take care of every part of our brain, our memory, our mood, our processing, but also our body, our digestion, our hormones, our breathing, our immune system. So when we're under chronic stress, which is months, days, years on a path to burnout, we actually then have a pattern of neuroinflammation in the brain that I say causes a busy brain and can start to have first these specific mental health symptoms. And most of us as high achieving professionals have learned to work through those symptoms and then the physical health consequences start. And an example was last night, I was at a book tour stop and a woman tells me I was under so much stress. I was having severe headaches and I was taking aspirin and Tylenol. Nothing was helping. I went to the emergency room. They couldn't measure the blood pressure. It was so high and she was having a stroke. That is what chronic stress will do to us. That's big. Yeah. There are people who say that they thrive on stress. Mm -hmm. They operate better with deadlines. They run around because maybe they're getting a little bit of that dopamine. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Just the feeling of, Mm -hmm. you know, stressing out and then having it relieved by making a deadline or performing at work or whatever it is. But are there bodies that actually do thrive on it in a good way. And it's okay for all, yeah. all of your all of your systems. I feel like we're talking about apples and dragons here. That old moniker and a TED talk that became famous that stress is good for you is about the acute stress response. So I grew up in Illinois and nothing was more volatile than driving when there was freezing rain and you hit a patch of black ice. That's an example of when the acute stress response is going to help you. So I'm not looking at oncoming traffic in the car and saying, whoa, what a handsome gentleman driving that, you know, Jeep that just went by. I'm actually focused on, you know, lifting my foot up off the brake and, you know, steering into the the, uh, right way with the steering wheel and avoid getting into oncoming traffic. Same thing from time to time. If you have a work deadline, that's an acute stress response. But we have to be careful because if you do that repeatedly, in my book, I call that the stress success cycle, that you're always living on the edge of stress and burnout. And you think, I can't perform at work and get through my quarterly sales goal, or I can't get through this week managing being a mom with you know young children and multiple activities and a boss at work without constantly being on the edge of burnout. If you're just joining me on The Mountain Life, I'm having a conversation with Dr. Romy Mushtak. She is talking about her new book, 
the Busy Brain Cure. It's the eight-week plan to find focus, tame anxiety, and sleep again. Dr. Romy, I just have to ask this question because in your last, the, the last points you were talking about, I was thinking about the things that I love to do that bring me into the present. And mm. I think it's because then I'm not distracted by anything else. Well, I'll give you an example. Whitewater kayaking. When I'm whitewater kayaking, I don't think of anything else. And, and so I think it's good for me. Mm-hmm. But then on the other hand, I wonder if it's because I'm having an acute stress response because, you know, it's about survival. You know, it seems like it's good on the one hand, but maybe not so good on the other because I'm having that kind of cortisol <laughs> in overactive well, mode. No, you know, with, with you, you clearly are experienced in whitewater kayaking and can probably handle, am I saying it right? The grade five, six rapids. Did, did I say that right? <laughs> You said it right. I definitely cannot handle the okay. grade five, six. Okay, rapids. listen, Auntie Romy here is like, oh my God, don't even put me on the grade one rapids. So for me, that would be stress, right? I would be the person that would fly out of the boat and get hit by somebody else's oar. But for you, it's a hobby. People can't see us on video right now, but you're talking to me about whitewater rafting and you could just hear the joy in your voice and it's all across your face. What you're experiencing when we do an activity we enjoy, you know, for me, that's yoga and meditation or walking around the lake with my dog, um, being one with all the ducks and the swans that are here in Florida in, in the part in the lake. Both of those things are identical in that they're actually stimulating in a healthy way dopamine and adrenaline, not that dopamine peak we get when we knock out another work email, but one that is sustained because we are out in nature. For busy brain prone people, Lynn, like you and I, that's great to do because what you're actually telling me is you have to be in the moment. You're using your eyes, you're using your sound, you're using your uh, hand-eye coordination, you're using your full body, all of your senses and your mind and your body are engaged. What you're describing is a state of flow. And when we cure our busy brain, we can be in that state of flow, not only when I'm walking the dog or doing yoga in the park and you're whitewater rafting, but even sitting, focusing on one task at work. Well, I like that. The state of flow, we all think about that, don't we? We've heard about the state of flow and it sounds so nice. And this is what you're talking about in the busy brain cure, essentially how we bring more of that into our lives. So is it really going to take me eight weeks to get Mm -hmm. there? Because it took me however many years to get to this point, right? (laughs) It is. And I think that's a, thank you so much for bringing that up. A lot of people, when I thought, when I ended up sick in surgery, this had been maybe 14 years of chronic sleep deprivation and stress being a woman in medical school, residency, fellowship at the job. It doesn't mean it's going to take 14 years for me to undo all of this. So that's a falsehood. The brain is plastic and the body and can constantly change and improve. So the first step you do is I want to know, do you have a busy brain? We describe that as you're chronically stressed. You have difficulty focusing or adult attention deficit disorder coupled with anxiety and difficulty sleeping. So you need caffeine or Ritalin to get through your day and you need alcohol or a sleeping pill or a sedative to calm down at night. That's a busy brain. What we, the first step we ask people to do is take the busy brain test. Uh, we'll put a link here for your show notes. People can go to drromi.com, take it for free. During our research period for the book, 17,000 people took this test. It gave me unique insight into those people that had a busy brain and were on the way to burnout with chronic stress. What symptoms were they having? 
And then how do we treat that? And most people, when they come to us and their score is above a 30, they've already tried everything. As I said earlier, they don't want to be told to eat berries and breathe. The last thing they want their workplace to do is hand them another mindfulness app or an emotional resilience class. Instead, they're ready to heal the root cause of when your airport traffic control tower and a busy brain is not working, please fix it. And in hindsight, eight weeks is a very short period. We give micro habits or little brain shifts to do every week that create a place where you can now wake up energized with or without caffeine, be in a state of flow at work, and then fall asleep and stay asleep easily. <laughs> that sounds like a pie in the sky idea almost. <laughs> you know, I mean but I, listen, I went into neurology when women weren't in there. And today, this week, I'm celebrating another pie in the sky moment with you. My book hit the USA Today national bestseller list. Uh, we're still looking up the data, but for a woman in STEM or woman in medicine to do this compared to a man, it's the odds are stacked against us like 200 to one. So you brought the pie in the sky doctor here. We tested this protocol on 1000 executives who went through the eight week challenge. We measured their busy brain before and after, and the results were astounding. Not only did people show market improvement in sleep and mood, here's the best part that's the pie in the sky. We give biohacks on what you should be eating, but we don't put anybody on a diet or a cleanse. So if you've already given up on your new year diet, we've got the solution for you. We actually celebrate people eating comfort food and most people end up reducing not only brain bloating, but belly bloating while they're on this. Well, yeah, let's talk a little bit about that because I remember hearing a long time ago about the sympathetic and parasympathetic mm -hmm. nervous system and how, you know, we as Americans in our culture, you know, how, how often are we eating in our cars after going through a drive through instead of doing those three to four hour middle of the day meals done practiced in many countries eating comfort yes. food, maybe, yes. maybe it's not all blueberries and your mm -hmm. body is being helped by the food. Can yes. you go into that a little more? I will. That's also part of the acute stress response. You're absolutely right. When we talk about the autonomic nervous system, the autonomic nervous system is tied to the limbic system and the airport traffic control tower. So we talk about that as one mechanism when you're chronically stressed, that system that helps you to rest and digest and your body and brain in a state of flow is now disarmed. And when you're under chronic stress or you have a busy brain, you're constantly in your fight or flight sympathetic response. And what we see is people having this triad of symptoms where they can't focus. You have adult onset attention deficit disorder. You have ruminating anxiety with it. So that ruminating anxiety is something like this. It should take me three minutes to send you an email to thank you for, you know, inviting me to be on your esteemed radio show. And 37 minutes later, I can't focus and too many browser windows open on my brain and my computer. And I'm anxious. and I don't know which one to tackle. And tonight I'll be having 72 warring conversations in my head. And the loudest voice is the negative voice saying, "Ooh." Thank God we didn't use video for that interview because my hair was so frizzy when I talked to Lynn. Like the least important thing is the thing that's haunting you in your sleep. And that's what happens. Um, you want to talk about pie in the sky. Like how many people just listening to that 
what could be utopia, sitting in the middle of the day for a luxurious Italian or French meal for three hours. And I'm thinking, do you know how much is on my to-do list today? Three hours in the middle of the day, that'll destroy me, my business, my family. That's being in a sympathetic stress response. <laughs> what we find though, is when you cure a busy brain, all of a sudden, not every email, not every item in your to-do list feels like a code red, must take care of it now. And you're able to do what we call quick shifts, focus on one thing quickly, go to the next and be your productive self. Mm. Comfort food though, is exactly what you said. It's the ability to share food that brings you joy, that is tied to culture, a positive memory, a meal, and hopefully sharing it with people you enjoy and, uh, not being on the diet or cleanse. Uh, we know that when people neurologically, psychiatrically are on a diet and you're meal prepping or you're forcing a smoothie down, while in theory that's healthy nutrition, you're actually elevating stress hormone levels and you're feeling deprived of the foods consciously or subconsciously, you know, you can't have. So we actually tell people once or twice a week, please schedule that comfort food meal, whether it's that luxurious three hour multi-course meal or just, you know, for me in this cold weather right now, it's Indian dish, basmati rice with potato curry. Mm. And it just makes me honor our family traditions and our Punjabi cooking and that. So enjoy those things and schedule them. And then the stress eating kind of just lifts away. And mm. that, to your point, it disarms that uh, sympathetic overdrive. Right. You were talking a bit about sleep and it so I have to ask this question, and then I want to get into the eight weeks, kind of an overview, perhaps, of the eight weeks. But when we wake up in the middle of the night, you know, for a lot of people, it's exactly at 2.09 a.m. or whatever. It's astonishing how- Asking for a friend, Lynn, right? Asking for a friend. We woke up at yeah. 2.09. I got you. I got you, girl. Yeah. And then you say that the least important and really the most negative thoughts come into our brain. And I've come to tell myself, Okay. That's a paranoid thought. Think about it again when you wake up in the morning. Um, but is there some reason physiologically that we're more paranoid in the middle of the night? Yes. Well, we can say, call it paranoid. We can call it a worry or we just can't prioritize. And somehow your brain is forcing you to wake up and say, you missed that email. You need to do it right now at 2.09 AM and you're half asleep. So you hit reply all. And now at 2.17, you're waking up half your team, right? Or the laundry seems like emergent to handle and you're going to get up and do a load before the kids get up. It's an irrational worry or thought you're trying to control. There actually is. So that same pattern of neuroinflammation that's disrupting the circadian rhythm, your sleep-wake cycle, you're under so much stress and inflammation that one of three things is happening when you're waking up in the middle of the night. One, we may lose a few friends. When I say this is if you had alcohol in the evening before you slept, right? Unfortunately, alcohol uh, directly um, reduces, the, while it may put you to sleep and sedate you, it upregulates these anxiety, busy brain receptors, and you will wake up in the middle of the night. It doesn't allow you to go to deeper stages of sleep, it actually raises the, the temperature in the brain and wakes you up. The second thing that happens is we're in such a busy brain that your insulin levels are spiking in the middle of the night in your brain and it is dropping your blood sugar levels. And this is an inherent response for your body to wake up saying, 
oh, you need to regulate blood sugar. And, you know, when our blood sugar levels are off a little too high or low, we're going to feel anxious, those ruminating thoughts. But here's the third thing that was so important in the research as I was digging through the medical research. One of the things that gets missed consistently by doctors in men and women, but specifically women, is abnormal thyroid function. One in eight women has something known as subclinical thyroidism in America, and it was missed by the primary care doctor. In the book, we give you the full lab slip. We ask your doctor to check all of them. If you're like me and you have melanin in your skin, it's one in four women. That abnormality in the thyroid is now disrupting your sleep-wake metabolism cycle, and that's why you're wide awake in the middle of the night and functioning. So typically, we check those three things first. Did you have alcohol? Is it blood sugar dysregulation because of stress? Nothing to do with type 2 diabetes. You continue this, you potentially could get diabetes. And the third thing you're waking up is a dysregulated thyroid gland. Now, listen, if this just happens from time to time because you're on a work deadline or you got some bad news in your family, that's to be expected. But if this is chronically happening, we have the labs in the eight-week protocol that we ask you to go to your doctor and get. And we made sure because we were testing these this workplace wellness program in corporate America, all of these labs should be covered by traditional insurance programs, health insurance programs in the United States for the most part. So yeah. would that be hyper or hypothyroid? Both. Too much? Or too, oh, both. both. And just you can yo-yo. Subclinical hypothyroidism is low thyroid. One of the things that gets missed, especially in women, is autoimmune thyroid. And so you can actually yo-yo between high or low. What we know in thyroid disease, high or low in women and in men, that about 40% of these patients only have symptoms that sound psychiatric, anxious all the time, I can't focus. So they're being given ADHD medicines or anxiety medicines, and that may be the Band-Aid, but we didn't figure out the problem that's lying underneath, thyroid. And that's why I candidly share my story in the book. It's really devastating. I was a doctor doing research on women's hormones in epilepsy and migraines for women. I kept looking at this going, do I have a thyroid problem? Yeah, my hair is falling out in chunks. I'm having infertility issues. And they only checked the two, three labs instead of the full panel. And it wasn't until I started to find the cure for my own busy brain and went to an integrative medicine doctor, they did the full panel that we have for you. We found out, oh my God, I have autoimmune thyroid disease. And that was at age 39, I had my first regular menstrual cycle. And I don't want any other woman to go through that. Wow. That's kind of crazy. It, it sounds crazy, Lynn, but it's more common than you think. Yes, Every time right. I give this lecture, people are raising their hand going, I knew it was my thyroid and I had to beg. And the doctor finally found out like it happens over and over. And that's why me being on your show is so important. If you're listening and you're a woman, please go get a full thyroid panel. You have a woman in your life you love please, who's an adult, this book was written for adults, please tell them to go and get this checked. Mm. So the busy brain cure, eight weeks, what am I going to expect in the first week? What am I going to do? Well, the first week is easy. It's about self-awareness and eliminating self-judgment, which can tend to happen when we have a busy brain. You read all the stories of my aunties and the wicked judgment that comes up in my brain when I have a busy brain from the point of the aunties. So we say, take the busy brain test in week one, get your brain score. And listen, I'm a rational brain doctor. This isn't about being pie in the sky or who isn't stressed or burned out these days. This is, let's get a number and let's fix it. And then we ask you to face what I call the aunties in your brain, resistance, denial, and projection. 
and come up with an intention of what would I feel like eight weeks from now. The second week is critical. No matter where you are, the first part of the brain shift program, S in shift, is sleep and circadian rhythm. We put people through an easy to follow seven day sleep challenge based in cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. And we have a couple of supplement recommendations too, that no matter how bad your sleep has been the last seven days or the last seven years, we have a solution for you. And we, um, you know, you download it or it's in the book and you can use check marks. And we typically find within a week or two, people are now getting restorative sleep. And some of that anxiety is starting to get curbed as well. Sleep aids. Are there any sleep aids that you recommend? You did say the word supplement. So mm-hmm. is something like melatonin included in the okay list? Not typically. Melatonin, I only prescribe to some of my executives or athletes that may be traveling and using it for just three to seven days because of jet lag, change in time zones. Um, you worked a night shift and that's not normal for you, melatonin long-term can actually promote a busy brain because then you're you're taking it and it's signaling to your brain, hey, Lynn, your brain doesn't need to make melatonin anymore. And melatonin is key. We actually recommend magnesium glycinate and clinical research studies tip shows that most of us in America are magnesium deficient. Not only is it immediately a calming agent, magnesium glycinate with a G is the one that crosses the blood-brain barrier and is needed to um, help all the metabolism and hormone pathways for your circadian rhythm. The other one we recommend, but please talk to your doctor, this is just a health education show, is 5-HTP, 5-hydroxytryptophan. I break down the medical research in the book at low dose. This is a natural precursor to serotonin, your feel-good boost of mood-elevating hormone and And then it breaks down to melatonin naturally in the body. And that's what we need at night to put ourselves in that rest, digest place, rather than that wound up busy brain place with the 72 warring conversations going on. The book is The Busy Brain Cure, The Eight-Week Plan to Find Focus, Tame Anxiety, and Sleep Again. Oh, it sounds so great. I wish for our listeners and for you and me both that we'll all achieve the busy brain cure. Dr. Romy, thank you so much for joining me on The Mountain Life. Lynn, it was a pleasure to walk in a pie in a sky moment with you. Welcome back to The Mountain Life. I'm Lynn Ware Peak. Now, there are people who participate in the well-known races or events, you know, the Wasatch 100, the Park City Point to Point. And then there are other people who set other types of goals for themselves, perhaps less famous or sexy. Our next guest just wanted to explore her backyard on foot. Charlie McKee became the first person to tag the summit of every peak in her hometown of Salt Lake City. There are 178 total. The feat took her nine months and 21 days, and she joins now to tell us all about how she did it and why it became a goal for her. Charlie McKee, welcome to The Mountain Life. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, I think this is so great because we very often, uh, if we're competitive or we like to participate in races or events, a lot of times we make them and turn them into a vacation and go a couple states away or, you know, across the country or maybe even internationally. But you really had this idea of every peak in your hometown. Why was that? Uh, I think you just um, 
hit on it. It's very much, I wanted to explore uh, what is very available to me without having to exhaust resources. Um, and I wanted to kind of force myself to pay attention to everything that maybe I wasn't already paying attention to when I go out for my regular trail run or for a ski tour or go rock climbing. There's just this entire playground, um, many world-renowned things about it. And I wanted to just make sure that I was doing myself a favor and seeing it all up close and personal um, and kind of sticking close to home and really appreciating the value of the place that I do call home. Um, so that's pretty much it in a nutshell. Yeah. Well, I like that idea. So often we don't know what's right behind us, or maybe we've never even met our neighbor. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I'm wondering how, what constituted a peak? Because you say there were just under 100, 180 of them. How did, what was the qualifier? Yeah, that was a great question because a lot of this I had to kind of piecemeal together to create the ultimate map. Um, but I wanted to do everything that was known. Um, so most peaks have a name, there's the trail, there's some sort of demarcation that makes them a high point near something else. Um, and so I took a combination of ski maps, trail running maps, just boundary maps, hiking, hiking maps. And if it happened to appear on one of those maps, that was it. And I kind of meshed them all together. Um, to create one that I thought would be pretty much everything included. Um, and so that ended up being 178. Um, and then the adventure really started. It was figuring out if these were possible. Um, so anything that has a name, I was willing to at least explore it. Okay. So was this and, you know, from on a north to south, east to west trajectory, what was included there? Was it Salt Lake Valley? Was it only Wasatch? Was it the Ochre Mountains? Yeah, so the entire boundary of Salt Lake City County was kind of what I was able to narrow it down to. And that actually includes the Ochre Mountains. Um, it includes the southern end near Draper. Um, it includes pretty much everything in Wasatch around Salt Lake City up to the Crest Trail. That is the marker on the um, east side. Um, and it goes up to City Creek. So I thought that was a pretty big uh, range. I had to make sure that it would be possible because I truly wanted to do all of the Wasatch. Um, and I think that might have to be a few year goal uh, because it's quite large. Um, so I kind of wanted to keep it into my true backyard of Salt Lake. So everything that I can see from my house, from the grocery store, um, and really make sure that it was every inch of that playground. Mm -hmm. Out of curiosity, how many peaks were there in the Ochre Mountains? Um, so actually there's quite a few and that was the majority of the private property because Kennecott Mine owns a lot. And so I was thwarted on many attempts to try to go to some of the smaller ones, but that one itself, if you included the private property, I think it boasts about 25, give or take a few, um, in the Northern section. And so there's actually a Southern section, um, and that is Kelsey mountain, white mountain area. Those are some of the pretty big ones. I got to get right up next to them with the buttermilk peaks, um, but those 
are also part of the ochres. It's divided into two, which I didn't know until I started this project. Um, there's the Northern Range and the Southern Range. So um, about 25 in Salt Lake. And I think if you were to do all of them, there's closer to like 40. Wow. It is interesting about the Ochre Mountains. Oftentimes when there's been a big, you know, series of snowstorms and I'm coming down, for example, Parley's Canyon down I-80 and I come into the Salt Lake Valley and I know every, many people do this. You, you peer across the valley and you see those Ochre Mountains and you always wonder about skiing in them. You know, yep. I do anyway, backcountry skiing because they're pretty pronounced and beautiful. I just mm -hmm. don't don't think about it. Did you access those mountains from the west side, from the back side of them? Yes. So the other side in Tooele County is BLM. Um, there are some private property boundaries kind of sprinkled in, um, but you can get up there to at least the ridge line um, where it borders private and public. Um, and those are probably some of the most rugged trails of this entire project. Um, but it was really fun to kind of finally have a reason to go there because I had looked at them for so many uh, years, just wondering what the trail running was like, wondering what the skiing was like. Um, and finally, I had my reason. So I was like, this is great. <laughs> those have been on my list for so long. Yeah, absolutely. Well, nothing like creating a list and many of us do this. Um, you, you have a goal, something in mind that you want to do, but until you sort of um, quantify it or make a list or make a goal or, you know, say I'm going to do this much vertical or like you, this many peaks, we're going to leave a lot out. And so this mm -hmm. really, you know, especially for project, a project like the Ochre Mountains, I just, I love it. Um, how... Well, I guess what were the peaks that were the most challenging for you? And had you climbed those already before? Because I know people who are really into, you know, hiking and trail running, they've already done a lot of those difficult peaks. So there's a handful. Um, and so I would say difficulty in this project kind of became two categories. Difficult as in it was seldomly done. There's not really a trail. It was kind of a quest difficult um, and then difficult by technicality. Um, so something about it made it just a little bit more strenuous. Um, so some of those peaks are very well known in the Wasatch for technicality. Um, the ridge lines between Big Cottonwood and Little Cottonwood, um, there's a famous route called the Whirl, which is kind of a horseshoe loop through Little Cottonwood Canyon, and it goes across this very technical terrain. Um, it's about fifth class scrambling, and the vast majority of it's very slow moving, incredibly dangerous. Um, I had not done a large portion of that prior to this project. It had been something I'd always wanted to do, but once you kind of get up onto the ridge line, you really are only able to move in one direction, um, time-wise, uh, fuel-wise, water-wise, nothing is working in your favor. Um, it's very exposed. So you kind of get up there and you got to keep going. So you have to invest a lot of time and planning into that particular ridge, those ridges and those routes. Um, so that was one I had not previously done. Um, there's quite a few uh, actual summits on that 
Um, so things like uh, Dromedary Peak, Jepson's Folly, O'Sullivan, Sunrise, um, the American Fork Twins, those are really the big ones. Um, and so that was really inter or interesting. I had to work my way up kind of in my training to just make sure that I could actually get to a point where my body was able to handle like 10 hour days with very little water. Um, and I felt comfortable um, being in that technical terrain. I wasn't going to shut down because I was scared or kind of slow down too much because I was afraid of moving across certain sections. Um, so that was a very fun kind of challenge. And then the other um, difficulty of the project was the very questing centered um, summits. And so these are ones like Black Mountain um, in the northern section. That one I don't think has been visited by very many people at all. Um, it's the actual summit of what is known pop more popularly as Little Black Mountain, um, which has a trail, but then it fades out and you are on a ridgeline bushwhacking. It's, um, I think, more visited by archers in the fall. There's a big hunting um, area over there. Um, so there's very faint deer trails. Um, there are occasionally some little clearings for footpaths, um, but for the most part, it is incredibly technical, very thick brush. Um, and so I think those might have been truly some of the slowest miles of the entire project, walking through very, very thick oak brush, um, getting holes ripped into my shorts um, and not having any water. Uh, and those are just, you're committed to going to a very particular spot on your map. Um, and it's a different kind of fun, different kind of hard, um, but all the same, it's mostly a mental game when you get to those kinds of terrains. Um, but I was very surprised to find a lot of enjoyment in both of them. Um, and so I think for the most part, this project, if anyone were to ever kind of duplicate something of that matter, they would find the same set of difficulties, um, technicality, time, and then just absurdity. <laughs> <laughs> If you're just joining me on the mountain line, I'm having a conversation with Charlie McKee. She took nine months and 21 days to climb all up, climb, hike, run, probably ski. We'll ask that next. Um, all of the peaks in her backyard, her backyard being Salt Lake County and the peaks numbered. Well, and I want to clarify this. So the peaks, are there were about 178 peaks, but you weren't able to access all of them. Or when there was private access, did you ever request and, and try to get access or how did that work? Yeah, so most of the private property is not in the scope of being able to request access. Um, there are a few in the southern section. Um, I'll use this as an example. They're actually on a military outpost. Uh, and so yeah. you're not going there. No, yeah, there's there's no I grew up military, too. So I'm very familiar the absurdity for them to be like, you want to just wander around our mountains above our military installation. Please don't do that. So I was thinking, OK, where are we going to make this something that is accessible in terms of a project for everybody? Um, and so if it's private property, it required any kind of special access. I wasn't going to pursue that route. 
although it'd be really lovely to have seen them all, all the different points of view on this project, um, I want it to be truly public. Um, so something that other people can duplicate, uh, a list that exists that other people can attempt for themselves or have to tick off as they go. Um, so um, Kennecott is another example. They are really not um, keen on letting people snoop around their property. Um, although I think you are allowed to get special permits for hunting, but again, I don't think you want to be romping around in the bushes when it's hunting season over there. Um, <laughs> so quite a few were, I guess, on the initial list, but just not really conducive to being a accessible summit. So had to come off, unfortunately. Right. So you are an, an accomplished runner and sounds like you're a a climber, a rock climber as well. And I'm assuming that you are an active backcountry ski tour. You had to start this because you finished in October. So you started in the middle of a, a winter and it wasn't just any winter. It was the biggest winter that we've had in many decades. And so uh, assuming that a lot of these ascents were on skis. Yeah. So I actually had to start the project um, in January and I was very excited for this, um, but most of these summits that don't really have a trail, um, I initially wanted to ski them because it would just be easier. And I say that with respect to the fact that you would already need to be able to ski them, but it would require less bushwhacking. It would be a lot more simple. Um, so I started with some backcountry skiing, um, focused mostly in Little Cottonwood area, ticking off some of those summits that didn't really have trails. Um, and you get to explore some really um, amazing things. Uh, the Wasatch is very well known for its backcountry skiing. So uh, fortunately for me, a lot of that's already been mapped out. So it was just kind of taking what was existing and trying to do my best to duplicate it. But Unfortunately for me, I ended up getting into a ski accident while I was out tagging one of the summits at the end of January, and I ended up breaking my fibula, and I had to self-rescue ski out of the canyon, um, and I missed the two best months of this like record ski season, um, so I had to kind of put the project on hold for at least two and a half months until I was recovered enough to at least go out for some little hikes and stuff. But by that time, all the good snow was gone and I was very disappointed. Um, but I think I managed 16 summits on skis in the month of January. Um, not as much as I wanted, but definitely a good chunk of ones that were going to be otherwise heinous if you had to do them in the summertime. Right. Oh my gosh. What a story that you broke your leg. Um, yeah. <laughs> sounds like you, I mean, you're young and you're, and you're healthy and you recovered quickly to be able to even entertain the thought of finishing this project as you did. <laughs> That's wild. Yeah. Um, talk a little bit about your running background. I know you're a, you're on the Solomon running team. So that's, you have to be pretty accomplished to do that. Yeah, so I think 2023 is my 10th year of running. Um, I grew up playing soccer and then went to college without soccer and had this void. Turns out uh, I was really just missing the running aspect of soccer. 
um, went out for a short run um, when I was in college and that run turned into an eight miler. And I think very quickly I realized I was probably more uh, inclined to endurance sports than I had ever thought. I bought a ton of books on it, um, just became obsessed, started trail running, met a, I met the trail community, which was really it. Um, that's usually what gets most people. Um, and then fell in love with it and moved to Salt Lake in 2016. And that's when the door really opened. Um, I started exploring a lot of places. I would travel to Moab often, St. George, Zion. It just became this huge uh, proponent of being able to go places that I had never experienced before. Um, so a lot of my running was really focused on just exploring. Um, and that was such a fun endeavor. And then I quickly learned that I was competitive, that soccer nature <laughs> really took over and would sign up for some races and then kind of found my own strengths throughout the sport. Um, and I really, I joked about this with a coach in the past, but I am the runner who enjoys the training more than I do the racing. Um, so getting myself to be fit enough to do a race was never really an issue. I would always be really up for the challenge. Um, so I would do tons of ultra distance races is kind of my specialty. Um, although I like to do a little bit of shorter things now um like half marathons marathon type stuff um but yeah it's been a really fun and rewarding sport to participate in um and i really enjoy getting to see things the nature of the sport itself as a competition is always really exciting um and then just being a woman in the sport now um is probably one of the most rewarding aspects to it watching women take down some of these incredible things, um, teammates of mine, uh, it's the most inspirational thing uh, on a monthly basis for me is just seeing what's happening in the sport. Um, so uh, yeah, I've been in it for 10 years now. I've been very fortunate to have my own successes with it, uh, but it's probably something I hope to be part of for the rest of my life. Um, but yeah. Well, that's great. So you talked about a couple minutes ago the Whirl, which is the Wasatch Ultimate Ridge Line Ridge Link Up. Yeah, right. And they did a, a really interesting documentary, um, and we moderated a panel for that. So I, I saw the kind of the intricacies of what you go through when you do a, a race like the Whirl. And I know a lot of people just check those peaks off between little and big cottonwood canyons as you say in that they go in kind of a horseshoe fashion but it's a, a big goal of people just to do one at a time let alone all of them and as you also said it's quite dangerous and um when you when we say dangerous it is the some some of the areas have sort of razor like ridges is that correct yeah, uh, razor-like ridges, a lot of very loose um, boulders and talus that um, if you're not familiar with that terrain, uh, it could be like stepping on a small landmine. Um, it could create movement, um, knock you off your feet. Um, and then there's some vertical sections that you have to either climb up or descend. 
Um, so being very comfortable on exposed dangerous terrain, um, there's quite a lot to that, uh, those talus fields. Um, they're beautiful and majestic from the valley floor, but when you are on them, they can be a, pretty spooky. Yeah. So you also have a day job. I mean, you just don't do this as your profession. And yet you mentioned a lot of the days would be like, 10 hour days, which I can absolutely imagine some of them may have even been longer. So you're kind of have to be a weekend warrior. Is that how you did it? Yeah, lots of big Saturdays. And I think the most difficult part was doing them back to back. So Saturday and Sunday, um, I would have to really rally to get out the door the next day after a really big day. Um, and then, yeah, some of the long weekends, um, most people were at barbecues. I was <laughs> up in the mountains bushwhacking around. <laughs> um, so, yeah, taking advantage of every opportunity. Um, so evenings, um, early mornings for some of them, mostly with the skiing ones. A lot of those were very early mornings. Um, but, yeah, just trying to work it in. Um, I work a full-time job. Um, luckily, I work from home, so it's a little bit easier. But um, very much time was not on my uh, side for this project, but it was exciting to kind of have an obsession after work or before work every day. Um, so yeah, most of it was done, I think, on a Saturday. And I met a lot of people in the mountains, so it was very fun to kind of run into them and um, you know, get their well wishes or invite them to come along next weekend for the next adventure. Um, but very rare to be out there, I think, with that much. Um, yeah, so, yeah. That, that was my next question. How many of these summits did you do alone and how many did you do with others? Um, I think I did. I would say more than half had to have been alone. Um, I should definitely count that total, but I think I was very lucky to get about half of them with friends. Um, so some of those were the more technical ones, obviously, um, just because it's very good to have a partner in that setting. Um, you, it's very dangerous. You really want to make sure that you have company. Um, most of the skiing, uh, were done with others, uh, partners, and that's just the nature of backcountry skiing. I think only one or two of those I did solo, um, uh, but on very familiar terrain. So, to me, it wasn't as frightening, but for most people, I think there's some dangerousness to going alone. Um, and then there's a couple that were rock climbing. Those are mandatory. You need a partner. Um, so for the most part, all of the bushwhacking ones were on my own. I couldn't convince friends to go bushwhack across a ridgeline or something for a couple hours. They were not into that idea. <laughs> Yeah, I'm going to keep that Black Mountain on my list of uh, hikes that I don't need to do. Um, yeah. <laughs> and then finally, I was think of, thinking about this when you were talking about bushwhacking up Black Mountain, where there wasn't really, you know, a trail to, to speak of. What was your navigation device? Um, so typically I used my phone um, and there are a couple different apps that you can download um, I typically used CalTopo and Strava actually has maps that you can download. Um, and so that means you have access to the map and your physical location will show up on it, um, even if you don't have self-service. So a lot of my route planning was done, obviously, preemptively. I would have 
relatively an idea of where I was going, if there was a trail, and if I had diverged from the trail, where it would begin, where it would end. Um, so typically, I was using a combination of those two apps at any given point. Um, it's always good to kind of make sure that you're in the same spot on more than one, especially if you're in unfamiliar territory. Um, so those are pretty much my go-tos for the entirety. Um, and they proved to be very fruitful because I don't think I got lost a single time. That's really crazy. I'm surprised that you didn't have a Garmin device. It seems like most people do that. And then did you also have some sort of device that you could send out a message on again, like a Garmin inReach? Yeah. So actually, if you have a newer version of your cell phone, it does have uh, a GPS notification that you can send out if you're in distress. Um, but I did have a cell phone for the most part. Um, and this is maybe just due to my personal experience. When I'm skiing, I have a beacon. Um, but when I'm trail running, I like to do just the basic of letting someone know. So that's either a friend or a relative or my partner, let them know where I'm going to be that day and kind of my estimate of things. Um, and I was pleasantly surprised once you get high enough, you actually have a good amount of cell service. So I was able to kind of shoot off messages of updates along the way, just so people kind of were aware if I was making progress, if there was an issue. Um, so I wasn't super concerned about it. Um, and I'm also just very practiced and um, disciplined when I get into terrain like that, because I do it so much. Um, I don't usually rely on having um, help. So there's always a good kind of indicator of whether or not you should attempt something and it's whether or not you can get yourself out of it. Um, so having the skills, the um, wherewithal to figure out what to do if you're in a dangerous situation, how popular is the area you're going to go to, are you likely to encounter other people? Um, and then just generally, how can you account for yourself? Um, are you setting yourself up for success with supplies? Um, so do you have enough things if it, you're in danger? Um, do you know that there's going to be a cell service? If there's not, then how are you preparing for that mentally? Um, you kind of have to look out for yourself in a lot of ways, but um, I don't like to rely on, you know, search and rescue because often if I was going to be in those sticky situations very far out, it's unlikely that, you know, you're putting other people's lives in danger. And obviously they're also trained professionals, but, um, you know, it's really on your own. Um, you got to figure it out on your yourself and rely on your own skills. So I caution anyone who wants to do something um, that's a little bit more dangerous, just really make sure that you check um, before you go kind of what everything you need, what's the potential weather, um, what are your water sources and how you're going to help yourself, um, because those are kind of the big things you got to worry about first and foremost before you go have an adventure. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, with all of that said, are, is there any one um, kind of crazy story that you'd like to share with our listeners about something that happened that you weren't expecting from, I don't know, wildlife to a sprained ankle? <laughs> you know, um, I wish I had a sprained ankle, but um, I, you know, you can break your ankle in a lot of places. Um, so I think uh, wildlife, I was very fortunate. I saw quite a few remarkable things but I think the coolest one I was able to encounter this year was 
um, and Little Black Mountain, the one with the real trail. <laughs> um, I had that summit all to myself, albeit it's, it's a pretty popular one for a lot of Salt Lake folks. Um, but I was running back along the ridge about to descend the mountain and I almost stepped on a little cluster of birds um, and they were very small. Um, and one of them turned around and was kind of threatening me and uh, he was wiggling his butt and he was about the size of a baseball. And I thought it was just the most adorable thing I've ever seen. Um, and I took a video because I had never seen a bird like that. It had eyes like the quintessential cute, um, animals, these big round, adorable black eyes. And, um, turns out it's a night hawk, which I had never seen before. And the males are pretty, um, I guess, aggressive. Uh, and so they are not, as a species of bird, they're not doing so great. And I think it's because they try to attack animals that are much larger than them. Um, but it was just this really surreal moment. Um, you know, I was anywhere from a foot to three feet away from it, trying to figure out how to get around this very tiny bird who was not willing to get off the trail. Um, and I think just in terms of nature, that was kind of one of the coolest experiences because, um, you know, there was no one else around. It was just me. And I got to just have this very up close and personal interaction with this new to me species of animal. Um, and I've encountered since then, you know, tons of rattlesnakes, but those are not new to me. You see them all the time around in the Wasatch. Um, but just having, I think, a, a bird encounter was very unexpected for me, especially one on the ground. Um, so yeah, I think there's a lot of things to be found in the Wasatch, especially in Salt Lake area. Um, so I encourage people to maybe venture out of their, you know, comfort zones a little bit, try a new trail. Um, there's definitely things that you are not exposing yourself to um, by doing the same trail often. And I say that as a creature of habit myself. Um, but yeah, there's so many beautiful things out there. Um, it's rich with history, too. What a great story. And finally, I'll let you go. Um, but wanted to ask you about how you're publishing this so that other people can maybe create their own sort of bucket list from your experience. Yeah. Uh, so currently I have everything listed. Um, I GPS tracked everything and took tons of photos. So everything is documented on my website and that's charliemckee.com. Um, but in the near future, I really hope to be able to produce an actual guidebook that has all the summer information and the winter information. So anyone who wants to access these summits, um, hopefully there'll be a place it's a lot easier for them to go to, but if you need a map right now, or you want just the GPS data, you can go to my website and have all of it. Charlie McKee is my guest, and she summited all the peaks in Salt Lake County over nine months, 21 days, both on skis, both uh, and, and running, and after she recovered from a broken, was it tibia? Tibula, yeah. Tibula. Oh my gosh, what an incredible story. Charlie, we will post a link to your website, but uh, can you just spell out your name for our listeners? Yeah, it's C-H-A-R-L-I-M-C-K-E-E.com. All right, Charlie, thanks so much for a great interview and I really appreciate it. Thanks for joining. Yeah, thanks for having me.
Great. Oh, that's so much fun. Sorry, wait, I kind of went over your stories were so great. Um, I will, I'm going to air this either next Wednesday or the Wednesday after, but I'll let you know, and then I'll send you a link so you can share it on your Instagram. Okay. So. Thanks so much, Lynn. It was a yeah. pleasure to talk to you this morning. Yeah. Really great talking to you. Thanks so much. Have a great day. Uh, you as well.